Welcome to the Redeemer Church Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are blessed as you join us in walking through the Word of God together. To learn more about our ministry in St. Albans, Vermont, please visit RedeemerChurchBT.com. Today I will be reading from Hebrews um, chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. So this is um, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God. Everything is naked and exposed before his eyes. And he is the one to whom we are accountable. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This is the word of the Lord. My prayer for, for this passage today um, and this sermon today is that if we're covering new truth, something that is new to you, that, that God makes it known uh, to you, but also if, if we're covering things that you have, have known for, for many years, uh, that, that it is a good reminder. I think that I've, I've heard from another uh, much better pastor than myself that one of the main jobs of a pastor as being a good reminder of these truths. And, and I know that, that I continuously need it. Um, studying it this week uh, was a good reminder for me. Um, and I think I found uh, some new truths that, um, that I had to kind of get straight in my heart as well. Uh, but as you've seen, we're continuing today in our series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, and Hebrews, as, as we've said before, seems to be basically the manuscript of a sermon that was preached to a group of, of Hebrews. And I'll tell you that this book has, is jammed full theologically. This is only my second sermon preaching in, in Hebrews, um, and still, man, it's like studying it. There's, there's so much there to, to pull out, and I think my desk this week was barely standing from all of the commentaries that I needed to study uh, that were just stacked up four or five books high all, all across it. Uh, so that's why we have to spend months kind of breaking this book down, um, and that we you know, if it's a, a sermon that was written down, that's, this, it's so full, which is the reason why we can't just read straight through it as, as one, one single sermon. Um, though I'm still, I'm sure it would still be shorter than one of Michael's uh, average sermons. Uh, um, he's not here, so he can't, <laughs> can't defend himself. Um, there's just so much here, um, so much for us to, to take this time to glean out. Uh, so that we don't miss any of these important truths. Uh, and if you recall, um, the past few weeks, we've been talking about entering into God's rest. Uh, and here and now, as believers in Christ, as our Messiah and our Redeemer, uh, we can experience a piece of this rest. We no longer have to toil away at making sure that we do enough good in our lives to justify us from all of the bad that we have done, and inevitably still will do. Though ultimately it was never possible 
for us to outgood all of our bad. Uh, for some reason, though, we, we often are tempted to think that we can place ourselves in some kind of community service program uh, to justify ourselves. But in verses 9 through 11, it says, first, there remains a rest for God's people, a final Sabbath rest for us, just as God rested on the seventh day of creation. And then in verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. Or in other words, let's work hard to stop working so hard. Uh, Jesus already finished the job for us. For God's people, the church, we are, we are now able to rest in him. We're no longer responsible for working to pay off our debt of sin uh, that we were never going to be able to afford. And one day on the other side of glory, there still remains an ultimate and eternal rest from our temptations and our sins and the difficulties of life. Praise God for that. This will be over one day. For the people that uh, this sermon was given to, it would have been a real temptation uh, to slip back into the practice of temple sacrifices for their sins, and therefore, by, by doing that, abandoning Jesus and his once-for-all sacrifice. Because that was what they had been doing their whole lives. That's what they were used to. The sacrificial system it is what came natural to them. Now, for us, I don't expect any of you to decide that sacrificing animals up here as like an altar is going to be the way to go. That's kind of it's dirty, it's gross. I, I can't imagine that that's going to be a temptation for you. The danger that we face most today is that we slip back into the common misconception that the world has about Christianity, that we are all just trying to be good, good enough to earn our way to heaven, and basically everyone except the worst people will earn their way. But let me warn you, that is not Christianity at all. That's more like universalism, and it's a dangerous false gospel. Universalism can come in, in many different forms, uh, but generally it will tell you that we are all basically good people, or at least that we start out with a clean slate. Or possibly that forgiveness of sins by Jesus is applied to everyone, whether they have faith in him or not. And this belief would then lead you to believe that you deserve heaven, that you're entitled to it, unless you've been one of those really, really terrible people. And also with this belief system, whose moral standard would you use? Does everyone get to make, the, make up their own standard of good and bad? Or is there an absolute truth? Scripture tells us that without Christ, our prognosis is much worse. It says that we all have a sinful nature within us, that we all fall short of the glory of God on our own. There's no one good enough. We need this outside intervention. And while our initial prognosis is really bad for all of us, even the worst sinners can have their slate wiped clean. The Apostle Paul, who at God's revelation wrote most of the New Testament, called himself the chief of sinners. And he was actually, he was really bad but before coming to saving faith in Christ. So how does all of this then lead into our focus today, which is on the power of God's word? It is by the power of God's word that the universe was brought into existence. 
by the work of God's word, Jesus, that we can be saved and enter into his rest. And again, by the power of God's word in scripture, that we may know him and have our hearts laid bare before him. And only by the word of God can we be given faith to trust in and be justified by the word, Jesus. And only the word of God can cut so deeply into us to root out our deepest intentions. So you may be wondering, okay, I'm like, what, what does the word of God mean? What are we referring to? Is that the Bible? Is that God's spoken word? Something else, something more than that? We're going to unpack all of that today as well. Uh, but before we go any further, uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you so much uh, that we can be here uh, in your house this morning. And I'm not referring to this building. I'm referring to this, this church here, these people, that we can be together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Be reminded of truths in your word. Or be shown new truths from your word. Lord, I pray that this morning that you, that you plant your, your word deeply within our hearts this morning. And help it to, to be clear coming out of my mouth. We love you and we thank you for your word this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. So I read an article recently. Um, about a man who had found out that many bookstore, used bookstores, thrift stores, uh, were having to put up signs and displays that they were no longer accepting one book in particular. Uh, apparently, many of these stores were receiving on average a donation of one of these books every single day um, and now had hundreds of them piling up with no one eager to, to come buy one. So the, the book being frequently donated was The Da Vinci Code uh, by Dan Brown. Once a very popular book, back when it came out in 2003, uh, it even had a movie adaptation uh, from it with Tom Hanks as the, as the star character. Now, I never actually read the book or, uh, or saw the movie, so I can't really speak to its quality as a, as a story. Uh, though I do remember hearing it had some kind of anti-Christian theme, so I think I would not recommend it for that reason, but I can't really speak any further than that on it. Uh, but apparently, it is kind of a, a dead book at this point. So now the, the guy in the article, when he found out about these bookstores with all the, the piling up uh, books lying around, he decided to turn it into a bit of a joke uh, about making use of all of these unwanted books. He started accepting donations himself of the Da Vinci Code. Um, before long, he had collected over 6,000 copies. Uh, he then took all these discarded books and by some process blended them up, turned them into a pulp, um, and somehow formed them into the pages of a new book, a, a classic book uh, that was, uh, at this point, uh, out of copyright, so it was able to be published by anyone. Um, so he took these old books, made them into a new classic uh, that people actually would want to buy and read. Um, so all of that to say, The Da Vinci Code is essentially a dead book. Um, it no longer really has any real effect on pop culture or people's entertainment interests. I do remember hearing a lot about it when it first came out. Um, so it did have a big effect, but you don't, I haven't heard anybody talk about it in a long time until I read this article. Um, but our passage, passage today uh, says that the Word of God is living and active. 
The Word of God is not dead. The Word of God in what we call the Bible here is, is without a doubt the most influential book in history. And many non-Christians will admit that. Uh, the Bible was the earliest major book printed and mass-produced uh, in Europe using the movable metal type. So basically one of the first books to be in the form of a book. Before that, everything was written on scrolls or on scraps of papyrus. And since then, it is the most sold book of all time. And it has even been translated into more than 3,000 languages. Even some fictional languages, like uh, Klingon, for some of you Star Trek fans. Uh, I'm not sure how useful uh, that would be. I'm not sure why that was done. Uh, it's interesting. Um, but definitely culturally influential all over the world uh, and throughout history. And all of that may be impressive, um, but is that what makes the Word of God living and active? Just because it has been influential historically? Or are we speaking about this object of paper and ink at all, or something much more? Now, one commentator uh, noted that the Greek word used uh, here in Hebrews to describe the Word of God as alive, or the living and active part of this verse. The Greek word used there, zone, I think was how you, it was pronounced. Uh, it's actually used multiple other times um, later in Hebrews to describe God himself. And this is significant. God's Word is alive not because of its cultural and historical influence. It's not alive because it is useful as a self-help book uh, to make our lives better. God's Word is alive and active because God is alive and active. God's Word is powerful because God is powerful. Amen. God's Word is so powerful that it always accomplishes what He intends for it to accomplish. And we see this in Isaiah 55.11. I think we've got that on a slide. It says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And we can have faith in God and His faithful word to accomplish His plan. And if we look all the way back in Genesis 1, we see where God speaks, and the entire universe begins to come into existence, all at the power of His word. That's the power of God's spoken word. Let there be light, and there was light. Let there be sky, and it was so. Let there be land, and it was so. Let there be plants, stars, animals, man, and it was so. God simply said, let there be, and there was. Even modern science uh, currently agrees that at one point in time, there was no universe. There was nothing. And then there was. Though modern scientists might disagree that there was a someone behind its creation rather than just another universe creating our universe. Now, if we look at another more brief account of, uh, of creation in the first chapter of the book of John, and it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So here, the word 
is clearly speaking about the second person of the Trinity, the Son, Jesus. He was present and alive however long ago at the time of creation. And again in John 1, verse 14, later on after that passage, it says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Very clear now that we're talking about Jesus. He became the incarnate Word of God at his birth. During Jesus' life and earthly ministry, by his word, people were healed, both physical ailments and healed of their sin. By his word, storms were calmed, people were raised from the dead, demons were cast out of people, food multiplied, all of this by his word. Then after his death, his burial, resurrection, we see in Acts 1 that he ascended into heaven to take his place at the right hand of God the Father. And that's where he is today, living and active. From there, he sees you. and He knows you. He knows the deepest thoughts and intentions of your heart that you are good at hiding from other people. He knows you. He sees you even if you don't know him. And after Jesus ascended into heaven, the gospel message then spread across the earth by the Holy Spirit's work through the apostles. And it was through these apostles that the Spirit revealed the inspired word of the New Testament, including these words in Hebrews. And while all of Scripture was written down by the hands of men in their tones, in their writing styles, it was all divinely revealed to them by God. It is the literal words of God. And I I found a, a clever quote this week about that, that if you want to hear God read the Bible. And if you want to hear him audibly, I've heard people say that, I want to hear him audibly. If you want to hear him audibly, read it out loud. (laughs) So when we speak of God's word, yes, we do mean his inspired word in scripture. Yes, we do mean the word of God who is Jesus. And yes, we do mean God's word that is powerful and so powerful that it can bring an entire universe into existence and control it at his command. So now that we've kind of begun to establish what and who God's word is, and that it is living and active, relevant, powerful, and essential to our salvation today, let's see what else Hebrews has to say about it. It says, starting in the middle of verse 12, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Okay, so now the author is likening God's word to a sword, but sharper than any sword. And more specifically, he compares it to a two-edged sword. There's no dull edge to any of its sides. Both sides are sharp. And no part of it is powerless or any less useful. A two-edged sword can also cut both ways. God's word can cut in judgment, and it can cut in love, as it cuts away sin that we bury deep in ourselves. In the book of Revelation, the word of God is also referred to as a double-edged sword. Uh, There, the apostle John, the author of Revelation, uh, sees a vision of Jesus holding seven stars in his right hand, and then with a double-edged sword not in his left but coming out of his mouth. Now, obviously, this is very much apocalyptic language here, uh, so more symbolic, hyperbolic, 
um, thine literal. But again, the word represents, the sword represents God's word coming out of his mouth. And at that time, he comes in divine judgment. The two-edged sword from his mouth will cut and cure. It will hurt and heal. God's word cuts away, cut, cuts one away as, as judgment, just as judgment of sin, which can be painful uh, to those who don't follow him. But for his people, the church, this looks more like, like conviction of sin, which is done out of love. And while it, it can cut and sting, it ultimately produces spiritual refinement, endurance, and faith. When his word comes as a sword to us who follow him, it is not out of violence and destruction, but out of love and healing from our sin, which must be dug out of our hearts. Just as a skilled surgeon uses a scalpel to cut away dead and sick tissue, which can be fatal, God uses his sword or scalpel to, to cut away the scars and dead tissue caused by sin and gives us new life in him by replacing that sin, that old stone heart, uh, with the truth. In this sense, the blade is the extraction and the cure. That's the, the idea of the two-edged sword, two edges to the sword of God. The cutting or extraction of, of our sin can be painful is not to cut out at, at the root and replaced with new spiritual tissue and organs. We will continue to spiritually, that, that will continually spiritually decay us if it isn't removed. And Jesus says in Mark 2, verse 17, those who are well have no need of a, of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His word cuts terribly in judgment, but it cuts lovingly on his church as it roots out the sin in the hearts of his people. And it goes on to say that it pierces even to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now the point here is not to give a biology lesson or to break down the parts of us as human beings, uh, our bodies, our souls, and spirits, the point here is to emphasize how sharp the point of God's sword is and how deeply it can go. When his word cuts, it doesn't cut superficially and leave some things untouched underneath. It cuts to the division of soul and spirits, to the joints and marrow. That's all the way deep. It's able to cut to the very core of our being. Able then to, as it says at the end of verse 12, discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's, it's relatively easy, as I said before, to keep those inner thoughts and temptations, struggles and secret sins and desires, even anxieties and worries, hidden from others. But God's word, like a sword, can easily cut down to those deeper things hidden within us. And at this point, we, we move into verse 13. Uh, and there's an interesting but subtle change uh, in the language used. Verse 12 has been referring to God's word in a sort of it sense, even though it hasn't used in this translation the word it. Um, we've been discussing it as an object, the sword. But now here, starting in verse 13, it says, 
and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now we know for sure that the author of Hebrews isn't speaking simply of this object of of paper and ink, as if it is just a useful tool like a sword. Now it is more personal. Now the word of God is a he, a he that we are fully and completely exposed to, as if our souls are naked before him, a he that we have a responsibility to. And my word choice, responsibility, uh, or this translation's words, to whom we must give an account, that might, those might both sound a bit tedious, uh, as, we've, as if we've already forgotten about that rest that we should now have from the earlier chapter, uh, earlier in chapter 4. Well, let's think about that. Um, now, when I married my wife, Katie, we entered into a covenant relationship together. I have a responsibility to her. I don't consider it an unfortunate or tedious chore in our relationship uh, to not step out of that covenant boundary with another woman. That's simply what I owe to her if I truly love her, that and much more. It's what I owe to her because of her love for me. How much more then should we consider ourselves blessed by the responsibility that we have to Christ? Katie gave herself to me in marriage. And that's the best thing that's happened to me aside from Christ saving me. But Christ gave his life for me on the cross. Because of his sacrifice, we can enter into that covenant relationship with him. Or in other words, we can enter into that rest that we saw uh, further back in the verses uh, 9 through 11. In that covenant relationship, it is no longer tedious work, striving to earn his love. It is now a joyous work that we strive for in utter thanksgiving to him. Without that rest that only he can give, it is only endless toil, with the only reward being death and damnation. Because of the power of the word, And what the word Jesus did for us, we now have that rest in him. Our sins are cut off from us by him as with the sword, like a tumor removed by the scalpel of a surgeon. And there is no depth within us where where we can hide it from him. We no longer have to go about the struggle of life and against the struggle of sin all alone. And that takes us then to the next portion of our passage. Uh, Let's read again uh, those last few verses, uh, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So now for these final verses, uh, we're completely focused on the incarnate form of God's word, who is Jesus and his power today. Not only on, on what he did during his earthly ministry so long ago, 
so obviously that is very important uh, to us. But on what he is doing today, right now, right now he is acting as a mediator for Christians, our intercessor, our great high priest, with the role of intermediary and the power to pierce us deeply like a sword and expose the deepest things buried in our hearts. We could also we could also see Christ as a window, sort of, like that, that we have to God in the wall of sin that we have built between us and Him. Through the Word, we are able to know God and His character, but it also, in turn, exposes us to Him. He's the high priest that can know and expose every part of us while also being the one to intercede and pay the price for us. Thankfully, the word priest is not a word that we as Protestants often have to use, at least not to refer to another fallen man that we would go into a confession booth with. I am, I am one of your pastors, but I am not your priest. I can preach this word to you, and I can teach it. I can pray with you and for you. I can try to help you grow in your relationship with Christ. But you don't need me interceding for you as a priest. We don't need anyone on this earth to do that for us. Now, Catholics uh, have their priests that they confess their sins to, and they have that guy over in Rome with the crazy hands, um, the Pope. <laughs> but if we read the truth that is in God's Word, it is plainly clear that we don't need anyone like that. We have one great high priest, you may recall that in the Old Testament, before Christ came, God's people, the Israelites, did need a priest. They would have to sacrifice animals and confess their sin to the priest uh, who would intercede for them inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. And this area of the temple was separated from the rest of the temple by this thick curtain or partition. Only, only the high priest uh, could enter that area for, for only the reason of making sacrifices. Uh, and there are times recorded in the Old Testament that the priest improperly entered, either arrogantly or full of sin himself, that he was trying to hide deeply with that, that sword. That sword found it, and he was struck dead. That's how serious of a matter entering God's presence is. God's presence is still just as serious, but this whole process uh, has changed with the coming of Christ. At his death for our atonement, that curtain was torn, and he now functions as our high priest. And we ourselves function as God's temple, our bodies, our, our hearts function as God's temple. Anyone can go to him in prayer or conf and confession of sin. One day we will finally be made perfect and be, be able to dwell in, in his presence. His work in us will be complete. But for now, we do need a mediator of Christ. We have a perfect mediator in Christ. Just like those Israelite priests uh, had to pass through multiple outer segments of the temple to then reach this inner sanctum area uh, where the presence of God dwelled in order to offer sacrifices for God's people. Jesus, at the end of his earthly ministry, ascended, and as this verse says, passed through the heavens. He being the second person of the Trinity, being fully God and fully man, 
And having paid the full price of sin, he could then reunite with the Father and intercede for us. And do it more perfectly than any priest ever had. So why couldn't he have just done this for us to begin with and not bothered with this whole like living life on earth and dying a gruesome death on the cross stuff? Well, most importantly, because the price of our sins still needed to be paid, but also because we can now know that he isn't looking down on us in pity and disgust at our weakness. He too came here. He suffered everything that we suffer. He suffered through sickness and pain, through being poor and hungry, loss of loved ones, and through temptation. But never once did he succumb to that pressure of temptation to sin. Because he lived in it and never sinned, he was able to take our place. And now our eternal reward for his work can begin. We can have that rest from trying to be good enough. Because if we trust in his work, in the truth of his word, we are given the righteousness of Christ. It says in our last verse, verse 16, uh, that we can confidently draw near to the throne of grace. And imagine how big of a deal this concept uh, would have been to these early church believers. They were used to there being only one man who could enter into God's presence. Only once per year at that. And then if, if it wasn't done right, the guy might just drop dead in there. But now the presence of God is freely given and we can draw near to the throne of God through prayer. And we can look forward to one day being in his presence for eternity. So as I begin to close us, um, let's then with this good news on our hearts, hold fast to our confession. And no, that's not the confession booth. This confession is confessing our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the Word that sees us and knows every single part of us, the Word that was present before time began and brought everything into existence. The same word that intercedes on our behalf so that we can enter into God's presence. The same word that will return in glory one day. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, your spoken word, your written word that we can read here, for your incarnate word, your Son, Jesus, who is our great high priest. We thank you that we don't need one of us to function as that anymore. We have a perfect, great high priest sitting at the right hand of the Father and interceding for us. Or we thank you for this reminder today Lord, if anyone here or listening to this sermon hasn't heard that, Lord, we thank you for that new truth and we pray that you plant that deeply in their heart. Lord, root out like a sword things that we are hiding deeply in our hearts. Cut it away. Replace our heart of stone with the heart of your flesh, your, your perfect flesh. 
Thank you for what you did for us, uh, to take this debt away (coughs) that we could never repay. Lord, help us to stop working to buy that, but to strive for that rest that we have in you. We love you, and we thank you for this this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.